847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I'm continuing my recurring segment uh, that I like to title Listening To, Um, in which I spotlight a specific composer or series. And in this case, this is part two of my focus on that most well-known, most famous film composer in the world, John Williams. He's the composer whose indelible music has infused our pop culture for more than 40 years, uh, ever since Jaws and Star Wars uh, in 75 and 77. Um, However, my aim has been with these two episodes is to spotlight more of his music outside of the blockbusters, um, outside of the collaborations with directors uh, Spielberg and Lucas, outside of uh, Harry Potter and and Jurassic Park and Superman, and, and mainly, you know, in charting his career, I wanted to call attention to those projects that are maybe less notable or just not on the radar of general audiences, projects that either preceded uh, the big blockbusters or uh, occurred uh, in parallel. I really kind of wanted these episodes to kind of focus on the John Williams you may not have heard. Now, in part one, uh, I discussed Williams' early years in the 50s as a session player um, on piano uh, for TV and film scores that were recorded in Hollywood. Uh, he also played piano in jazz clubs around town. Um, and then his beginnings of composing themes and episode scores for TV series in the 60s, such as Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, uh, Land of the Giants, Wagon Train, Gilligan's Island, and others. Um, I then mentioned how he had migrated into film work primarily through these wacky adult comedies uh, in the the 60s, the mid-60s, such as Not With My Wife, You Don't, and A Guide for the Married Man, uh, with a few dramas and westerns kind of sprinkled in there. Um, and then how this sort of led into um, doing movie musical adaptions uh, like Fiddler on the Roof and also some standout original music for movies such as The Reavers and The Cowboys. We then moved through the 70s. Uh, we examined scores which led the way into Star Wars, uh, sort of laying some of the groundwork for that, and also the after effect, the fallout from Star Wars for the rest of the 70s. Um, and I wanted to bring attention to how the hallmarks of his orchestral sound really kind of coalesced in the 70s um, and how he was inspired by the qualities of, a, of the 19th century symphonic works um, and, uh, in addition to some modern 20th century techniques, uh, some jazz colors, and also movie music from the golden age of Hollywood, uh, which is kind of what he has um, you know, been most well known for is uh, bringing back that model of Uh, movie music and how it sounded and was applied to pictures in the 30s and 40s, how Williams brought it into the modern era and uh, kind of reintroduced it to uh, audiences. So let's pick up where we left off.
1980 only featured one score by John Williams, but it was a real stellar high watermark in his musical canon. And this was Empire Strikes Back, uh, which is the Star Wars movie that actually introduced the world to the Imperial March. Probably one of his most top three well-known uh, pieces of music along with the uh, Star Wars main theme and Jaws probably, but um, many people don't realize that it's actually not in the original 1977 uh, Star Wars, uh, that he actually wrote it as a new piece for Empire Strikes Back. Um, so then the hot streak continued uh, the next year, 1981, with Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, the first installment in the Indiana Jones series. Another feather in his composing cap with a main theme also heard around the world. But also in 1981, there was a small science fiction movie uh, that most general audiences uh, and fans had never heard of, uh, and almost no one really saw at the time. Uh, this is a movie called Heartbeeps, uh, directed by Alan Arkush, and starring the idiosyncratic comedian Andy Kaufman, along with Bernadette Peters. They both play household robots who want to start a family together, uh, all backed by a score uh, where Williams mixes uh, the orchestra with prominent electronic sonorities together, um, but not in a cold manner that one might expect in a science fiction movie, at least nothing like uh, what something like Jerry Goldsmith brought to Logan's Run um, in 1976. Instead, it's got a real winsome charm, a real breezy charm, which I think is a little more akin to his comedy scores from the 60s, just with updated instrumentation. Um, so here's a bit of the end credits piece from Heartbeeps. So that was some of the end credits music from Heartbeats from 1981. Uh, one other quick note about Heartbeats. So in the years following Star Wars uh, in 77 and its top-selling uh, soundtrack album, um, it kind of was a foregone conclusion that pretty much any movie with music by John Williams would have a soundtrack album released. Um, however, Heartbeats was one of the few that kind of fell through the cracks. Um, 
probably because the movie itself was so poorly received and reviewed. Um, in fact, I even read that Andy Kaufman apologized for the movie on uh, David Letterman. <laughs> uh, so imagine me as a young fan way back in the late 80s trying to... Uh, absorb everything I can about film music and uh, and and also everything that Williams did. And I had learned that there was an unreleased science fiction score from Williams composed between the masterpieces Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, uh, you know, my mind would reel like, what the heck was this about? I could never find heartbeats playing anywhere, you know, on TV to watch. Um, so it was finally released on album by Veris Saraband Records. So it finally allowed me to hear that it's really nothing like either Empire Strikes Back or Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> um, but it has its own real charm to it uh, and its own sort of indelible melodies. So as Williams journeyed through this specific phase of his career, the blockbuster phase, um, his overall sound and style had you know, shifted into one expressed primarily through the traditional symphony orchestra, uh, the one from the, the late 19th century. So he was sort of moving away from the earlier small-scale works uh, with the smaller instrumental groups like those we heard last episode in The Long Goodbye or The Manual of Cat Dancing or Missouri Breaks. Um, and his approach, you know, led the way in terms of, like I said earlier, adapting the classic golden age model of movie music to modern cinema. And this wound up influencing many others in the industry. Um, and they were either following his example or they were purposefully reacting against it. So moving into 1982, we actually find a similar situation that we had in 1981 with a monster critical and commercial hit this time with the uh, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, alongside a score for a less well-remembered movie, in this case, Monsignor. Now, Monsignor is a movie starring Christopher Reeve, and it's a drama set in Italy, spanning time both before and after World War II. Um, Reeve play, uh, plays a priest who gets involved with uh, both the Sicilian Mafia and also romantically with a nun. Um, it's a movie that uh, wasn't kind of like Heart Beeps. It wasn't well received uh, or reviewed, uh, so most people didn't see it, and it just didn't uh, receive very good notices. But um, William's score is a rich one. Um, it showcases uh, three primary themes, um, and it also kind of continues his predilection for incorporating concert classical forms into his scores. In this case, uh, there's sort of this slow, mournful uh, waltz tune uh, led by a solo trumpet, uh, there's also a mass, uh, there, there's a, uh, a sequence, uh, like for a Catholic mass with this massive choir, organ, and orchestra piece, sort of like almost a requiem, um, that, uh, he composed. And then there's also this sprightly cue, almost a scherzo, uh, that he, uh, for the movie that he actually wound up expanding into a concert piece of his own called the Esplanade Overture. Um, here's that mournful solo trumpet-led theme. This is the main theme for the movie Monsignor from 1982.
That theme could be a little bit of a spiritual successor to uh, Nina Rota's main theme for The Godfather, also on solo trumpet, and also waltz and sort of has a mournful tone to it. Um, so there is also, from Monsignor, a track on the original soundtrack album called Meeting in Sicily, and it's based on a cue heard only briefly in the movie. But this is one of the many examples where Williams expands on his own work outside of the project and who records special versions just for the album. And this is something he really excels at. Um, so he might take a short cue uh, for a short sequence. Maybe he just really is, is jazzed by the idea in it. And so outside of the movie, he'll expand it, he'll do variations on it, and then he'll record that with the orchestra specifically outside of the movie and put that on the soundtrack album. Um, so this is the piece I mentioned uh, that he later restructured also into a concert work uh, he called the Esplanade Overture, and this is named after the, the River Esplanade located in Boston, uh, near where the Boston Pops performs. I, I mention this because um, Williams was appointed as conductor for the Boston Pops in 1980, uh, and this provided him a great stage upon which to premiere much of his film work or his uh, concert work. And that includes the piece that evolved from this track from Monsignor. This is Meeting in Sicily. It's really such an invigorating piece of music, uh, and it's so great that this album was finally issued on CD back in 2007 by Entrada Records. Um, it had spent decades being this rare LP uh, for collectors that uh, you just couldn't find anywhere. Um, now, that was 82, and then the following year, 1983, that actually mirrored 1980 in that Williams' only film work was featured in a Star Wars movie. This time, it was Return of the Jedi. Um, now, in some ways, um, it's this closed what many consider to be his peak blockbuster years from 1977 to 1983, bookended by Star Wars and Jedi, um, where everything he composed was firing on all cylinders um, and hitting emotional chords with audiences everywhere. Um, now, you could probably extend this period both forwards and backwards, um, basically starting in 75 with Jaws up to 84. Um, 
since uh, you had Temple of Doom in 84 also being a, a huge success. Um, and speaking of 1984, uh, this was a similar situation to 81 and 82 in that we have one spectacular Spielberg extravaganza kind of overshadowing the other score that Williams composed that year. Uh, and in this case, it was the aforementioned Temple of Doom, but Temple of Doom kind of overshadowed a movie called The River. Now, both of these scores actually wound up being Oscar-nominated, though. So The River is Williams' fourth collaboration with director Mark Rydell. Um, now, we heard examples of their earlier projects in the last episode with The Reavers and The Cowboys, um, and there was also another movie from the 70s called Cinderella Liberty, which I unfortunately didn't have any time to play an example from. But each of these uh, feature a score that's really steeped in an Americana style of music, uh, whether it's the folk instrumentation uh, that's heard in the Reavers, uh, the Aaron Copeland-inspired uh, music from the Cowboys, and then uh, Cinderella Liberty actually kind of has a blues or a bluegrass kind of uh, inspiration to its score. But that actually continues here in the River, uh, which is kind of a welcome return to some of that instrumentation um, heard earlier, such as acoustic guitars and also a drum kit. But it's couched in a more lush orchestral setting that was appropriate to William's style overall in the mid-80s. And it also has a multi-thematic approach, uh, which had been his, his, which had sort of become his style at that time. There's at least three main themes in the score, ranging from this opening soaring energetic uh, theme uh, to like a bluesy solo trumpet uh, love theme. And then there's also a, a, a shorter theme. It's it's a moody sort of solo flute. Um, uh, but it, it's so it's a multi-thematic work and uh, it's a real winner again, but it's it's definitely one of those unheard um, and less well-known projects from Williams. Uh, but here's the main theme from The River from So in that same year, uh, Williams also provided the first of several epic themes for the Olympic Games, uh, this time for the games held here in Los Angeles. This would be the 1984 Olympic Games. Uh, so this piece is the one that seems to get played the most often in concert. Um, he did do later themes for the 96 and 2002 Olympic Games, um, but uh, I just heard it performed at the Hollywood Bowl concert uh, just recently, Labor Day weekend concert. Um, so it seems to get uh, 
the most airplay. Um, and just as a reminder for everyone, in case you may not have watched an Olympic telecast in recent years, uh, this is a bit of uh, Williams' theme for the 1984 Olympic Games. Impulsive brass fanfare aspect that you hear, uh, it really emerged as quite a staple of Williams' orchestral sound. Um, of course, it was first and most associated through uh, his music for Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Superman, but uh, it also emerges in, in other various concert and event pieces that he composed later, uh, such as the NBC News theme and the fanfare for the 1986 Statue of Liberty Centennial. Now, in the following year, 1985, um, John Williams actually returned to television for the first time since uh, the early 70s, uh, this time with a theme for the TV series Amazing Stories. Now, this was a production from Amblin Entertainment, which is Steven Spielberg's company, so I'm kind of bending my focus a little bit here to sort of include this theme, um, mainly because it's a really awesome tune from Williams, but it also doesn't seem to get mentioned as uh, often as I find. Um... In addition to the theme, uh, Williams provided two episode scores for the show. So the show didn't have a regular uh, composer, and it was a more of a Twilight Zone type of model um, where each episode was a completely different story. It was an anthology kind of story. Um, each episode, a different director and composer and cast. Um, now, um, Spielberg directed two episodes, and he had Williams provide music for both of those episodes, um, Ghost Train and The Mission. Now, the standout of these two, um, I think, is for the episode titled The Mission. It's a real mini-movie level of, uh, or, of, of score. It's a real orchestral tour de force. Um, but here is Williams' main title for the show. Now, interestingly, Williams worked on fewer film projects during the mid-80s, uh, with no 
film project at all in 1985, as he he surprisingly did not wind up scoring The Color Purple uh, from that year, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Instead, composer Quincy Jones provided the music for that movie. Uh, It was a real rare occasion in which Williams and Spielberg didn't collaborate together on a project, Um, repeated only once again uh, in 2015 when Thomas Newman scored Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Now, it could be that Williams was pausing his career to focus on uh, concert work and his time as Boston Pops' principal conductor. Um, He had continued to write concert music throughout his career, Um, and maybe he needed to recharge after that incredible string of memorable movie music from 1975 through 1984. Now, in the following year, in 1986, he only accepted one film project, that being Space Camp, uh, directed by Harry Weiner and starring Kate Capshaw and Leah Thompson. Um, Now, it's an earnest, family-friendly movie uh, about a group of kids who join the summer program at Space Camp, uh, which seemed to be a much bigger deal when I was a kid uh, and and throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, But the kids accidentally get launched into space on the space shuttle. Now, Space Camp unfortunately found itself released shortly after the Challenger shuttle disaster in January of that same year. So this may have diminished audience enthusiasm for the story. Um, Although the movie has its fans, and it's interesting that um, it may not have performed very well at the box office, but uh, it kind of became one of those perennial favorites. There's a lot of people in my generation that really um, have a soft spot for it. Uh, but William's music uh, is an absolute highlight. Uh, I think he was really inspired by the subject matter, and uh, he presents this heroic, stirring brass and percussion main theme uh, with also a, a soaring string uh, midsection that kind of is in a similar vein to his Olympic fanfare piece from 1984. Uh, so I want to play a bit of music from Space Camp. This is the end credits music, um, and you'll get how, um, how, how heroic and stirring this piece really is. Now, the soundtrack album for Space Camp um, kind of had a similar fate as Monsignor uh, earlier, where it became um, went out of print really quickly and became a really rare sought-after collector's item. So for many years, most of us fans just could not find a copy of that and uh, without paying exorbitant prices, but there was 
a really great re-recording by Eric Kunzel and the Cincinnati Pops, which was kind of my introduction to that theme. And I, I picked up one of his collections back in the late 80s, and uh, uh, it was pretty awesome. And it's a really great score overall, but you can hear that fanfare idea in the brass, um, that sort of vaulting uh, fanfare idea in the brass that kind of uh, it, it sort of fits into that mold of his Olympic fanfare piece. Um, now, incidentally, John Williams' son, Joseph, provided some pop songs for Space Camp, uh, very appropriate to the era, the mid-80s. Um, and also, in the liner notes of the special edition of the score from Entrada Records, um, Mike Mattesino, who's very well known to uh, soundtrack album collectors as, a, as an excellent producer, um, he mentions that John Williams had been holding off on accepting film assignments during 1985, as Spielberg had asked him to be available at a moment's notice for when his version of Peter Pan would start production in the UK. Now, obviously, this production wound up being delayed and then canceled and then actually reborn as Hook um, in 1990. Uh, so it's it's sort of interesting, to, you know, why William sort of, you know, was uh, didn't accept as many projects and that he was kind of waiting in the wings for this big version of uh, of Peter Pan, which it did wind up happening. And he produced a fantastic score for Hook. Um, also, I think it's interesting to look at what was happening in film scoring at that time in the mid 80s. Um, so even though Williams had reintroduced the classically symphonic style of the golden age of Hollywood back into cinemas, there was still this pervasive trend to both front load as many pop songs as possible in a movie, but also for the scores themselves to lean towards electronics, just sort of make it more of a synthesis between the uh, the genres. Um, so it became a real tug of war. Um, and then there were still big orchestral scores being heard in many movies, again, sort of because of that reintroduction from, from Star Wars. But um, pop songs would often still take center stage in the movie and also on the soundtrack albums. So even just a few short years after the last Star Wars entry in the classic trilogy, um, Williams' own approach was already sort of being considered maybe out of fashion by some. Now, in 1987, Williams returned to a more busy film composing schedule uh, with two great, often overlooked scores. Um, The first being for the underrated Spielberg-directed drama Empire of the Sun, starring Christian Bale. And secondly, for the darkly humorous Witches of Eastwick, starring Jack Nicholson and directed by George Miller. Uh, Miller had been previously known uh, really just for the Mad Max series up to that point, the the three uh, Mad Max films prior to Fury Road. Now, Nicholson plays the devil. Um, He arrives in a conservative New England town and seduces uh, three uh, women um, who eventually end up taking revenge on him. Uh, This was based on a, a... a book by John Updike, uh, also starred Cher and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, um, and Susan Sarandon. Um, now, the primary feature of Williams' score is what's known in music as the dance macabre, so it's French for the dance of death. It's kind of a wicked, mischievous piece with this uh, Tarantella-like tempo. Uh, there are these uh, trilling woodwinds and a harpsichord and at times kind of a solo fiddle that musically evokes a demonic presence, but it's all with the wink of an eye. There's a sense of playfulness about it. Um, now I want to play, uh, first the main theme as it's introduced at the top of the movie, which it's introduced in more of a surreptitious manner. Like you're not really sure if you can, you know, fully trust the character that it underscores. Um, but it hasn't reached like, uh, those uh, the, the bigger proportions that it does later in the movie. So here's a little bit of that opening cue from The Witches of Eastwick. Mm-hmm. 
Then, at the uh, at the end of the film, for the credits piece, Williams places this theme in a much more embellished setting. Uh, there are much more ominous overtones. Uh, there's these tolling bells. There's this uh, sort of unnerving kind of scratcher uh, sound. Um, and uh, there's this rapid Tarantella-like tempo. So it sounds much more like it's introducing a, you know, sort of demonic figure that's coming to town. Still has a wink of an eye, though. It still has this playfulness about it. Um, but I th- think uh, this also kind of, if you can imagine, you extract some of this mischievous element to it. In a way, it's a forerunner to Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter, um, just in terms of uh, some of the sprightliness, I think, of it. Uh, but here's the end credits from uh, The Witches of Eastwick, which he titled The Dance of the Witches. Witches of Eastwick and Empire of the Sun were nominated for Oscars, um, a scenario that actually began to reoccur with some frequency during Williams' career. Uh, by that, I mean a double nomination at the Oscars. Even if he didn't win, it was still um, a really neat treat. Um, I should also mention, besides the two um, film scores uh, for that year, um, Williams also wrote three uh, new pieces for the ill-fated Superman four. Um, the last movie starring Christopher Reeve as Superman. Um, now, Superman 4 kind of came and went. It got chopped up in the editing, um, and it was kind of a mess musically. Alexander Courage, who's a great composer and orchestrator in his own right, um, was credited with the music and for incorporating some of Williams' uh, Superman material from the original. But um, for a long time, it was sort of one of these rumored things fans didn't really know about. So in 2008, uh, the label Filmscore Monthly released um, an archival box set of music from all four of the Christopher Reeve movies, and it was discovered in going through all those tapes that uh, Williams had indeed composed and recorded three new themes for that movie, um, for the character Jeremy, uh, for the new love interest, and also for the villain Nuclear Man. And so that uh, thematic material uh, wound up getting interwoven into the score, so there was a lot more new material than people had actually heard about. Uh, so that was kind of a cool little surprise. Um, now, the next score that I wanted to spotlight um, in this score, the piano takes the center stage. So we're really kind of taking a 180-degree turn from uh, what we had with the uh, Witches of Eastwick. Um, this is for the 1988 drama, The Accidental Tourist. 
now this score features prominent uh, lyrical piano solos uh, backed by the orchestra. And this really uh, tends to focus your attention on the um, uh, intimate story uh, that unfolds involving the three main characters in the movie, uh, played by William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, and Gina Davis. Uh, The Accidental Tourist was directed by Lawrence Kasdan, uh, who had previously impressed audiences in that decade, um, and critics as well, uh, with directing Body Heat and The Big Chill and Silverado. Uh, Plus, he was actually credited as the screenwriter for Raiders of the Lost Ark, so he came in with a lot of pedigree. Um, Plus, showed a great range as far as a director of different types of of films, different genres. Um, Now, the score from Williams, not only does it harken back to the smaller scale scores that he was composing in the early 70s, uh, such as for Pete and Tilly and The Paper Chase, um, but in this specific instance, um, at least I find, it recalls the singular thematic focus of his score for The Long Goodbye, which we heard in the previous episode. Um, This is that score where it was a single theme that he composed for the movie, um, and he basically just, uh, that theme received multiple variations throughout the movie. Uh, So in 88, it was a real surprise, uh, since Williams had become known for composing these multiple thematic uh, scores for for all of his movies at that point. Uh, Now for The Accidental Tourist, it's one main theme, but it can be broken down into three components. Um, so he's able to kind of mix and match those components from scene to scene. Um, there's a four-note motif, uh, and then the main melody is kind of broken down into like it, the main melodic phrase and then kind of a bridge. Um, so Williams in each cue will kind of uh, pass these around different sections of the orchestra, but for the most part, the piano really leads the way uh, through the entire score. So here's the cue for uh, the wedding scene in the movie. The cue title is actually Wedding Scene, uh, where we will open with the main theme on piano and then into the bridge, and then the four-note motif is expressed by the string section. So again, here's the wedding scene music from The Accidental Tourist. It's really a very lovely score, and, and that cue itself is actually one of my favorites from that uh, from that score. Uh, it's interesting when I picked up the Accidental Tourist um, on album. Actually, I bought it on cassette, 
back in 88 or 89. Um, I was taken aback because before that, I was you know, basically used to William's work for Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Close Encounters, and so on and so forth, all the, the big blockbusters. And I had not been exposed to another side to, uh, to him. And uh, so this was a real, you know, like I said, it was a real surprise, but it was real winning surprise. I immediately uh, became entranced by the accidental tourist. I watched the movie as well, and and William scores really effective throughout the whole movie, um, and he does such a great job of uh, variations on that theme that you never really tire of it. I mean, it's it's always going from piano to chimes or to strings or horn or oboe. Uh, I mean, he still comes back to the piano, but it's such a, a great a great little score. Um, now, when the topic of William's style gets discussed, um, speaking of that, you know, uh, comparison between a Star Wars or an accidental tourist, I find that there uh, can be a tendency to generalize, uh, and some will simply pigeonhole William's style as bombastic or operatic, um, whether that's meant to be dismissive or celebratory. Um, but this assessment, I think, is based solely on focusing only on his blockbuster scores, um, and even then ignoring some of the subtleties that you can find in those scores. Um, but in that that conversation, I will often point out the accidental tourist as the antithesis of that assessment. Um, in fact, I find that the accidental tourist is kind of part of an unofficial trio of uh, piano-led scores during this blockbuster period. The other two being Stanley and Iris and Presumed Innocent, both from 1990. Interestingly enough, The Accidental Tourist was William's only film project in 1988, kind of like how Space Camp was his only film project in 86. Uh, However, following this rather low-key three-year period for film projects, and starting in 1989, Williams ramped up his output again and continued this increased activity uh, into another big string of successes both commercially and critically, um, over the next four years that all pretty much crescendo in 1993 uh, with the double whammy of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. So 1989 includes for the first time two films directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, Always and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, the latter showcases one of Williams' best scores for that particular series, and it was also one of the year's top blockbusters. Now, he also hit some uh, critical highs with the first of three films collaborating with director Oliver Stone, uh, this being Born on the Fourth of July. So um, Born on the Fourth of July kind of initiated their own unofficial trio of movies, uh, their own sort of unofficial trilogy, if you will, on 20th century America. So uh, again, this, like I said, this initiated with Born on the Fourth of July in 1989 and then continued with the films JFK and Nixon um, each uh, a few years later. Uh, so Born on the Fourth of July starred Tom Cruise as the real-life disabled Vietnam veteran Ron Kovic. So this is kind of his biography. And for the score, Williams noted that he wanted to limit the instrumentation to just a string orchestra led by a solo trumpet. Um, the trumpet would be less of a military instrument and more of a reminder of home and a reminder of happiness at home uh, for Ron Kovic. So I want to play a bit of uh, William's score here for Born on the Fourth of July.
So that was Tim Morrison featured on solo trumpet there in that uh, music from Born on the Fourth of July. Now, with JFK in 1991, Oliver Stone asked Williams to actually begin composing before production began so that Williams' music could be used during the editing process, sort of the reverse of his usual process. I think that uh, Stone wanted to treat the score more akin to how he utilized songs for his films. And he usually has a lot of uh, songs in his movies, um, basically needle dropping them in whenever needed, um, whether for time and place. But I think he wanted to treat the score in the same way. Um, and there are because there are a ton of songs in both Born on the Fourth of July and JFK to set the period. Um but uh, he didn't want to finish editing a scene and then have the music written to its specifics. So William's score as a result is a bit more piecemeal than usual for JFK, um, mainly consisting of these standalone set pieces um, that don't really refer to each other much thematically. Um, Set pieces such as the dissonant uh, music for the assassination sequence and some electronic cues. And uh, what I mean is that they don't refer to each other thematically. There's not like a recurring theme that sort of persists like, you know, an Indiana Jones theme or a Superman 3 theme or even Accidental Tourist where there's this theme that runs through the entire length of the score. Now, there is a theme for uh, for Kennedy uh, heard first in the prologue and also in the uh, final cues, again featuring Tim Morrison on trumpet um, as in Born on the Fourth of July. But this theme has a bit more pageantry associated with it. It's almost heralding the uh, arrival of Camelot in a way. So here is the prologue music from JFK uh, from 1991. So I mentioned how the uh, score for JFK is a bit more piecemeal uh, with these disparate 
standalone pieces. But I wanted to mention that there is an electronic heavy cue for the movie called The Conspirators on the album, which wound up being a favorite uh, in movie trailers and temp tracks after this. Um, in fact, Williams himself did a variation on this specific cue for Jurassic Park, uh, which, if you know the movie uh, pretty well, it's uh, when the character Dennis Nedry is uh, stealing the dinosaur DNA. Um, but there's this groove-based electronic uh, cue that uh, underscores that that is really kind of based on this cue, the conspirators from JFK. So I'll play you a little bit of that. So that piece of music uh, got tracked, like I said, into many movie trailers, usually thrillers, um, during the uh, the 90s. Now, in the same time frame as these last two films we talked about, uh, Williams scored the hugely popular double hitter of Home Alone and Home Alone 2, uh, plus uh, Spielberg's elaboration of the Peter Pan fairy tale Hook in 1991, uh, that being the project that Spielberg had been trying to develop for years. And it features a truly grand and melodic score from Williams. I mean, it really is just chock-a-block with so many memorable themes and set pieces. Then in 1992, director Ron Howard hired Williams to provide music for his 19th century epic, Far and Away, about Irish immigrants in America. Uh, This stars Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Now, Williams responded with another score full of great variety of uh, melodies, but also a great variety of instrumental colors. Um, It really runs the gamut from these very small, uh, intimate settings for just chimes, um, all the way up to these rousing fanfares for these uh, fight and land race sequences. And then there are also these frequent performances um, from Yulian pipes, penny whistles, and fiddles, all thanks to the Irish group, the Chieftains, um, which he had worked with uh, with the Boston Pops the year prior to this. So uh, Far and Away, again, is one of those movies that I think slipped through the cracks. I don't think it performed as well um, uh, commercially as people expected. I've always loved this score from Williams, and uh, I think for for Williams fans, it's, it's one of those unheralded masterpieces that he scored as far as the latter half of his career. Definitely well worth uh, seeking out. Uh, the end credits music here is a wonderful summation of so much of his uh, themes uh, and melodic material for the movies. I want to play a bit of the end credits here from Far and Away uh, from 1992.
personally, I find that Far and Away can be counted as a, as a real musical triumph for, uh, for Williams, even if the film itself didn't achieve uh, notoriety. Um, and leading up to, to this score, um, Williams had actually been nominated for an Oscar for Best Score every year from 87 through 91. So the fact that he didn't get nominated for Far and Away kind of broke that string, unfortunately. Uh, but regardless, going into the next year, um, after this, Williams uh, had you know been continuing to tr- contribute uh, marvelous music to um, to the massive pop culture hits of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Home Alone One and Two, Hook, and even Presumed Innocent was a big hit, alongside the critical successes of Born on the Fourth of July and JFK. So as I had mentioned, you know eighty seven up through here kind of started another um, ramping up, I guess of. Uh, of, of huge successes, both commercially and critically, um, kind of crescendoing into 1993. So it was in 93 that he and uh, Steven Spielberg experienced a personal and professional peak for both of them um, with two films uh, from that year, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. Now, these projects couldn't be more contrasting um, and, of course, required wildly different tonalities. Um, but this provided Williams uh, a great opportunity to flex his compositional muscles in so many directions and really remind people of his immense range. Now, Schindler's List, of course, required a very sensitive accompaniment, um, never saccharine, uh, while still being the emotional spine of the film. Uh, and then Jurassic Park um, received an energetic score of really great excitement, terror, um, and also a surprisingly uplifting uh, tonality um, with uh, his, his main island theme. Now, both scores have become favorites uh, with general, general audiences and, and concert staples. Um, and that year, 1993, is an example of the uh, of a two film a, two films in one year model uh, for Spielberg and Williams. Uh, two films, each with vastly different subject matters, uh, a real yin and yang in genre, uh, which began in 1989 and continued here in 93 and then also the model was followed uh, mirrored basically in 97 2002 2005 and 2011 each of those years showcasing uh, a dramatic picture and something more genre related action or science fiction Um, now williams had no film projects in 1994 uh, followed by two in 95 uh, those being the romantic comedy sabrina um, which he provided a really 
uh, lovely gentle score uh, and also Oliver Stone's biopic Nixon, uh, which showcases a real brooding and sometimes thunderous uh, score from Williams. Now, in 1997, Williams scored four films, which was a feat he hadn't really achieved since 1974. There were two Spielberg projects, The Lost World, a.k.a. Jurassic Park 2, and the historical drama Amistad, um, along with two more dramas based on historical events and people, Seven Years in Tibet and Rosewood. Now, Seven Years in Tibet is especially notable for its guest soloist. So following on from the earlier examples like Tim Morrison on trumpet for Fourth of July, uh, born on the 4th of July, that is, and Isaac Perlman on violin for Schindler's List and Christopher Parkening on guitar for Stepmom. Uh, Seven Years in Tibet features the world-renowned Yo-Yo Ma on cello. So there are some wonderfully flowing melodies on display in this score. Um, some of them are adhering to the pentatonic scale, uh, which is most associated with music from the Far East. But overall, there is a deeply contemplative quality to the score. Um, the movie is based on the autobiography of mountain climber Heinrich Harar. Harar I always seem to mispronounce that. Uh, who befriended the Dalai Lama. And uh, the movie stars Brad Pitt and is directed by Jean-Jacques Henneau. So here's an excerpt from the end credits cue. Uh, again, with cello solos by Yo-Yo Ma. Now, while Williams scored four films that year in 1997, there's no diminishment in quality of the music at all. Um, all four scores are really fantastic. Um, the Lost World it sort of takes this Jurassic Park material in a darker vein uh, with a really beefed-up percussion section. Uh, Amistad features uh, a wonderful uh, choral element. And then with Rosewood, interestingly enough, the instrumentation recalls the folksy instrumentation that you heard in The Reavers back in 1969. Um, in addition, Williams wrote three gospel spiritual tunes, uh, which again was a side that people had not ever heard from Williams. So in the interest of my the focus of my episodes, I'll play a little bit of one of those uh, spirituals that he wrote. Uh, this one is called Look Down, Lord. This time I'm coming for 
So that was one of three gospel tunes that Williams composed for the 1997 feature Rosewood, um, which uh, was a movie directed by John Singleton of Boys in the Hood fame and starring Ving Rhames. Um, and it was about a tragic historical event in 1923 um, involving an African-American community. But interestingly enough for the score, uh, John Singleton had originally hired jazz artist Wynton Marsalis to write the score but it didn't wind up hitting all the dramatic beats that he needed it to do. So he looked to Williams. Um, and interesting, according to the liner notes uh, written by Jeff Bond for the uh, expanded edition of the a score from La La Land Records, um, basically uh, the director Singleton had wondered if Williams was a- able to actually write uh, the gospel spiritual tunes. Uh, and Williams reminded him that he had arranged and conducted for the famed uh, gospel singer Mahalia Jackson back in the 60s. So I was not aware of that. So that was interesting to learn. So as we move out of the 90s um, and into the 21st century, uh, we find that Williams actually slowly begins to limit his film projects, uh, primarily down to um, his Steven Spielberg collaborations, uh, further installments of the Star Wars series, and a trio of Harry Potter movies. Now, of the 26 movies that Williams scored from 1998 until 2017, only five don't fit into these three categories. Uh, now, there's still a great amount of musical variety to be heard in these last 20 years, um, thanks to Steven Spielberg's broad spectrum of topics for his projects. Um, but nevertheless, it's intriguing, um, you know, mostly probably evidence of Williams uh, perhaps becoming more selective of where his energies are spent. Um, now, since my focus in these two episodes are on the less well-known scores by Williams, um, I wanted to sort of wrap up by spotlighting just a few of these films uh, that are not in those three categories that I described. The first one that I want to spotlight is his music for The Patriot from 2000, starring Mel Gibson and directed by Roland Emmerich. So this is a fictionalized story uh, which occurs during the American Revolution, Um and it actually is a score that Williams, uh, he wasn't initially, he wasn't the first composer on the project, um, but he was brought on and he provided what I think at the time anyway was his most exciting score since Jurassic Park in 1993. Of course, there's been a lot of other exciting music since then, but um, it, The Patriot uh, features two marvelous main themes, both major key. Um, one is this stirring and propulsive call to action um, expressed by the uh, dynamic brass and percussion. Um, a kind of akin to his uh, more fanfare kind of pieces like the Olympic fanfare and, and uh, Space Camp. Um, and the second theme is more of a warm, comforting theme uh, for uh, Mel Gibson's family, his character's family in the, uh, in the movie, um, often expressed by solo violin, uh, accompanied by acoustic guitar and harpsichord, interestingly enough. So I want to play uh, an excerpt from The Patriot from 2000.
So that was some of the family theme that I mentioned uh, that for the for the movie. But since this is a multi-thematic score from Williams, I want to play a little bit of the sort of propulsive, uh, inspirational sort of uh, stirring uh, brass and percussion music that he had for the uh, uh, for the movie as well. This is from a cue called "Preparing for Battle." One aspect I love about that theme is that at various times in the score uh, for the Patriot, Williams will strip away uh, all the brass and percussion, paring it down to just these mid and low range woodwinds to perform the theme, um, at which point it almost sounds kind of uh, hymnal, uh, akin to a church hymn. In its in its chordal structure, um, and yet you know it's it's still in its sort of this humble presentation a very stirring theme. So it it, uh, it really is a very uh, flexible uh, melody for the score. So something that I find fascinating about Williams' music um, as we sort of uh, wrap up our, our episode here and we're listening to you know a lot of his music from, uh, from the recent decades, um, close listening to his music from these last 20 years will reveal a subtle shift in his style. Um, he definitely started favoring uh, soloists, as we've heard in, in a number of examples here. He really, I think, started to enjoy that collaboration in the music. Um, but also his music was becoming more complex in its structure, uh, which is interesting because film scoring overall in the last few decades has become, has sort of favored a lot more of a simplistic approach or a stripped down approach. Um, but his harmonies became more complex. Um, they were drawing more on modern dissonant classical tonalities. Um, so you can hear this in scores that he did for um, the Spielberg Pictures AI, Minority Report, and War of the Worlds. Um, his action music began to be based more on riffs and kind of short 
motifs uh, rather than developing a long line melody with a counter melody and in and, and a traditional classical model and something you would have heard in a Star Wars um, or an E.T. Um, so it's just interesting that uh, while he's still sort of seen as the paragon of uh, the Golden Age, uh, carrying on the model of the Golden Age sound of movie music, you know, he hasn't really been static in his develop as, development as an artist. He still, you know, has gone into different in- uncharted areas, whether harmonically or rhythmically or um, a certain instrumental color. Um, so he's never really, you know, stood still as an artist, uh, which is which is really fantastic. Um, now, I also wanted to spotlight another of uh, those projects I mentioned that were non-Spielberg, non-Star Wars, non-Harry Potter, um, and that is 2005's Memoirs of a Geisha. So here for this score, Williams actually reached back to previous soloists and brought together two of the most notable, Yo-Yo Ma on cello and Itzhak Perlman on violin, very interestingly enough. Um this movie was an adaption of a popular novel that uh, was originally set to be directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, however, it ended up simply being produced by him uh, with Rob Marshall handling the directing duties. Um, and interestingly enough, the cello and the violin actually each represent a character in the movie. So um, other than having like, you know, in addition to like their own themes, but they have a specific instrument that uh, represents them, which sort of kind of goes all the way back to Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. But I wanted to play a really great cue from the score called Going to School, uh, which I think features Yo-Yo Ma really well um, on his cello. So again, this is a a cue, Going to School, uh, from Memoirs of a Geisha from 2005. In addition to Memoirs of a Geisha, Williams tackled three more films that same year. Two more directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, Munich and War of the Worlds, along with George Lucas's Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, um, all of which are top-notch inspired works from Williams. Now thus far, since 2005, The Book Thief from 2013 has been his only film project not in those three categories that I previously noted. Um, those being Spielberg movies, Star Wars movies, or uh, Harry Potter. Um, And in terms of that latter category, his musical contributions to the Harry Potter series ended in 2004 uh, with uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of uh, Azkaban. Now, even with the reduced presence in the industry in recent years, Williams really remains at the top spot in the art form. He's the pinnacle to which everyone aspires. For more than four decades, he has been the through line of excellence in film music, 
navigating trends without losing his personal voice in the process. Even when he revived the classical symphonic approach to film scoring, he's wound up even outlasting that trend itself and many of his contemporaries to the point where he's almost a solitary figure now in continuing that same model. He's kind of the last link to that grand musical past of movie making. Now, I'm not sure what the art and craft of the industry will sound like when Williams is gone, but I do know that one of the best topics for fans and audiences throughout all of this has been, what is John Williams working on now and what will he be working on next? As always, I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take a second deep dive into the John Williams you may not have heard, uh, specifically in this episode, music from the 1980s and beyond. If you're interested in learning more about Williams, uh, check out the site jwfan.com. It's a really good resource about his career, uh, soundtrack albums and concerts and awards and all sorts of other things. They've got a forum there as well. Music in this episode was composed by John Williams and from the following films and TV shows. Stanley and Iris, that was the opening intro music. Uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Heartbeeps. Monsignor. The River. The Olympic Fanfare for the 1984 Games, Amazing Stories, Space Camp, The Witches of Eastwick, The Accidental Tourist, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Far and Away, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Seven Years in Tibet, Rosewood, The Patriot, and we are closing out with Memoirs of a Geisha. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle. And on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening. 